the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. And forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. 
Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting, and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. And now we turn to Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verses 19 to 34. The Lord Jesus, this suffering servant of whom we read, says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more? Clothe you, you of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or with what will we clothe ourselves? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. One of the seven questions we ask candidates for communicant membership goes beyond mere adherence to biblical orthodoxy. 
It goes even beyond personal experience of grace. It goes on from there to the matter of your personal intent from this day forward. Do you purpose to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in all the relationships of life, faithfully to perform your whole duty as a true servant of Jesus Christ, and seek to win others to Him? Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, calls into His kingdom and into His church not religious groupies, not Bible brainiacs or spiritual thrill-seekers, or the merely curious. He doesn't invite men to take this blood-bought Christian faith out for a spin, out for a test drive. The Christian faith and life are too valuable to take that lightly. These precious things we've been studying over the past five weeks aren't a spiritual fling today to be flung away tomorrow. No, by the gospel he calls into his kingdom those who are ready to become true servants. The daily circumstances of life and living pull us in so many different directions, don't they? So whether we're Christians or not, simply on the basis of time management principles, none of us get very far into the years of adulthood before we have to ask ourselves, what is going to be the organized principle the organizing principle of my life. What am I essentially going to be about for these 60 or 70 or 80 years? Whatever it is, that's going to be the last thing I throw overboard when the typhoons of life hit. That's the main thing for which I live, and we do ourselves a favor if we can determine early on in life exactly what that's going to be. Because life just gets so busy if we let it. It stretches us so thin if we're trying to do everything. Doesn't it? So each of us has to determine what our chief end is. The final purpose of life and how we're going to reach it. After all, you're gifted people, you're talented people. Others want you on their teams, don't they? They want you on their boards, on their committees. They want you to bake cookies for their bake sales and write articles for their newsletters. They want you to drive them to their practices, to their games, to their recitals. There are those business trips you have to make. And then there are your own personal desires. I'd like some time to put in a garden. I'd like some time to learn ceramics, or woodworking, or Latin, or whatever it may be. And the days aren't getting any longer as we go along, and the span of years left gets shorter and shorter all the time. So, what do I do with my life? That part of it's still left to me. How do I even decide what I should do? Some, of course, decide to put business first. They decide to become, above all else, corporate men or corporate women, and then, as necessary, let other things fall by the wayside. Their homes, their marriages, their friendships, love, 
ethics, truth. Others fresh out of college look at their circumstances and decide, I spent all this money on my profession. I'm a certified Aggie engineer now, so a certified Aggie engineer I shall be. And they pour themselves into building their professional resumes. Some put family first. Some entertainment. Some church. Some you fill in the blank. The point is that whatever comes first on the list becomes the organizing principle and everything else falls into line behind it. Everything else, if necessary, you are willing to throw overboard, if necessary, to keep that top priority afloat. As we read through our gospel passage this morning in Matthew chapter 6, I hope it struck you, as it does me, just how tightly knit it all is. The Sermon on the Mount is all of a piece. It takes us somewhere. So when Jesus tells us, for instance, to seek the first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's not just because it's another good religious idea. It's teaching that has something to do with all that went before it. It has to do with the things we worry about. The great physician prescribes seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as the remedy for all those anxieties we suffer. There are things in life you need, of course. But anything else at the top of your list to help you get those things you need eventually is going to let you down. Through no fault of your own, perhaps, your business fails and takes your income along with it. Or your family fails and leaves you with a broken heart and not much else. Or your health fails and with it all the pleasures of life you once enjoyed. Whatever your confidence in this life, whatever your center of gravity, whatever your number one on the list, sooner or later, if it falls short of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you're going to discover it was a bad deal. You're going to discover it was a false hope for victory. You're going to find out it was confidence misplaced. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness goes far beyond the mere pursuit of a noble aspiration. His kingdom and righteousness are far more practical than that, far more helpful. Down through the ages, thousands of people have discovered, even now are discovering, that seeking after God's kingdom and his righteousness is the one buoyant plank left to them after the shipwrecks of life. The kingdom of God is the one unsinkable thing at those times when clinging to anything else in life, anything else in the world, would have failed them miserably and taken them to the bottom. At those crucial times and seasons, the kingdom of God and his righteousness proved to be life itself to those seeking it. The way of life, the means of gaining it, and its very end 
and purpose. Martin Luther, in his hymn-writing, advises us, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. One of the reasons the Sermon on the Mount resonates as it does with every new generation is that Christ couches it in the realistic setting of our own human vulnerability, our frailties. The fact is, we worry about things. And the fact is, we have good reason to worry about things. I mean, look at us. Look at our human faults and failings. From the ones hidden in the darkest recesses of our hearts all the way up to the scale of the national and international headlines, we always seem to live right on the brink of some new disaster. The remedy, Christ tells us, the remedy to all these natural anxieties is to seek first God's kingdom. And his righteousness. Put that at the top of your list, at the top of your life. And beloved, to spare yourself endless heartaches, I implore you, do this while you're still young. Make the kingdom of God and his righteousness the very first criterion in your decision making. Which way shall I go in life? Whom shall I marry? What shall I study? Where shall I live? Well, what's in the best interests of the kingdom of God and his righteousness? His promise is that all these other things you need and fret about will then be added to you. Those things aren't the meat, but the gravy. The meat and muscle of life is the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom. And righteousness. And listen, beloved, because this is the very best part. This promise about your needs being met doesn't originate with me. That should be great news to you because I have absolutely no power to enforce this promise. It's not my promise. It would be outrageous for me, a mere man with no power whatsoever over your life circumstances. It would be outrageous for me to make such a promise as I am now passing along to you. It's the promise of him who has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. The authority both to promise and to provide. Now it's a conditional promise, of course. The condition is that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now let's stop there for just a moment and consider kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're being called to seek both first. Two things in first place. And yes, it's a tie for first place. 
It's a tie. Seek these two things together first. And as you do, you'll quickly discover that they're not really two separate things at all. They're not mere abstractions we seek. The reign of God and the righteousness of God are just two of the infinite excellencies of God himself. So the point is, seek him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the glorious person in whom these qualities of reign and righteousness, power and goodness, in whom these qualities reside. Even in the best of merely human religions, if I can put it that way, we're prone to distort one side of it or the other. Either God's kingdom or his righteousness. We either think God immensely powerful but not quite as morally good as we'd like him to be, Or we think he's perfectly good in his intentions, but not quite powerful enough to bring those good intentions to pass. It's a skewed perception of who God is, and it's all wrong. But it's the way sinners think, whose thoughts are not God's thoughts, and whose ways are far below his. So we worry about why bad things happen to good people or why good things happen to bad people. And we think, well, after all, he either doesn't reign as king at all or he doesn't reign righteously as king. Beloved, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is both powerful and good, infinitely powerful, infinitely good. And among all this human race, fallen in Adam, six or seven billion strong, only the biblically informed Christian has the theological wherewithal to keep it all together in balance. Only the Christian can put together these two attributes of God, his kingdom and his righteousness, in first place. That's because we know who God is. And what he's done. Christ embodies these perfections of God. All of them. All of them. He's the very word of God made flesh. So seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness comes down to your seeking first above all else the person of Jesus Christ. Not two impersonal principles competing for one spot in your thinking, but one preeminent glorious person embodying everything we need in this life and the one to come. He's our only king, our only righteousness. Any other king trusted as though he were God will fail us on the day that kingdom is put to the test. Any other righteousness trusted fall short on the day we're examined. Christ must become our king and Christ our righteousness. As I said before, seeking him is the only remedy heaven offers to the genuine, well-placed anxieties of our day. And one treatment of this remedy alone won't do it for you. This remedy isn't a vaccination, it is your daily meds 
The imperative he uses is in the present tense. What it means is keep seeking him. Keep seeking him. Keep it up day after day, year after year. Seek him continually because even when you find him, you discover you only want more of him. Isn't that the way love is? Seek Jesus Christ, your righteous King, first for His lasting security. His lasting security. His kingdom and righteousness don't fail to meet the need ever. The treasures you lay up for yourself on earth may all be well and good. It's good that a righteous man leave an inheritance to his children. So when the stock market goes up, let's be happy about it. When we find ourselves a new job that pays the bills, let's thank the God who gave it. But moth and rust eventually eat their way into things laid aside for a colder, rainier day. They do, even if that day never comes. Even if you never need them, never use them, quietly these things are being eaten away. Thieves break in and steal. And they do this not when you expect them, not when you plan for them. Part of the hurt is that you didn't plan for them. It's not just the loss of the treasure, but the shock and surprise of it all, the sense of having been violated. It hurts to plunk down $20,000 on a new car, but that's nothing like the shocking surprise of losing it to computer hackers and identity thieves. Friends, unlike the Christ who holds us in his strong grip, these lesser treasures on earth don't last, and they can't last. We can't hold on to them. They make themselves wings. Apart from the unforeseen property losses of thievery and accident and stock market crashes, even in better times there are the predictable losses of taxation, depreciation, wear and tear. So enjoy your treasures while you have them, but treasures on earth can all be taken away from us, and one day, very soon, they will be. They will. Jesus Christ is the incarnate kingdom and righteousness of God. Once you've sought him for his lasting security, you actually secure him by means of lucid sensibility. And that's the point of verses 22 and 23. Lucid sensibility. Don't let this matter of the clear eye slip past you unnoticed. Vast numbers of people today seem to operate under the delusion that Christianity is a matter of some great leap in the dark. Not being able to know for sure, you just let go and let God. You just make a leap of faith and hope that maybe he'll catch you. Beloved, I wouldn't choose my breakfast cereal that way, let alone my God. Run away from anyone who is trying to tell you, uh, trying to sell you spiritually a pig in a poke. This true treasure, Jesus Christ, our King and our righteousness, is obtained by careful study of things that are verifiable. That's why we have this book. 
That's why we read it. You're not scratching off some lucky card hoping you won something. Blind leaps are for blind people. Jesus Christ calls you and directs you to exercise a clear eye and to walk toward Him and with Him, not in the darkness, but in the light. Once you've sought Him for lasting security and found Him with your lucid sensibility, yours is the privilege of serving Him with loyal fidelity. We shy away these days from using the word slave. We look for other words to fit. Because slave is an unfashionable word. It is an unhappy word. And in any other case, with any other master, it's an unhappy condition to be in. The borrower is slave to the lender. The slave or the debtor can't get himself free just by wishing it so. Freedom calls for the payment of the debtor's debt. The delivery of the captive's ransom. Slaves must be redeemed. They must be purchased in order to be free. That was God's law, protecting the interests of everyone involved. If the redemption price is paid... You're freed from service to the old, only to become the property of the new. But if your new master, the Son, has set you free, says Jesus, you shall be free indeed. Has he redeemed you? Are you now the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, if you are his slave, then you are as fully and joyously free as any human being has ever been since the world was new. Beloved, let us now live as the free men and women and boys and girls we are in Christ and look for no one else to serve. We seek Christ, our King, and our righteousness for his lasting security. We find him by applying lucid sensibility to the facts of history as we learn them. We then ever afterwards serve him with loyal fidelity. And should we ever forget our new relationship to the Heavenly Father through Christ? Should we ever grow fidgety and fretful again over what we should eat or what we should drink or what we should wear? Christ our King and righteousness makes this gracious accommodation to our faulty memories. He surrounds us each day with living analogies of his care. Living analogies. I can remember when I was a boy and things at school would get me down. My mother would sometimes suggest I just go out for a walk to clear my head. It's good counsel. It's even better if you know what to look for while you're out walking. Jesus said, look carefully at the birds flying overhead. Do they look worried? Where's their next meal coming from? The birds don't know. The birds don't care. 
The meadowlark's proverbial for singing his absolutely carefree song. And why is he so carefree? Well, who feeds them? Psalm 145 says, The eyes of all upon thee wait. Their food in season thou dost give. Thine open hand doth satisfy the wants of all on earth that live. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And so they're fed. Consider carefully the lilies of the field, he says, while you're out on your walk. No one planted them. No one domesticated them. No one waters them. No one fertilizes them. No one weeds around them. They're just there. Bending under the breeze, each bright face open to the sun, and Solomon in all his glory never clothed himself with such perfectly pure, simple beauty. It's Christ who came to bring God's kingdom and righteousness to bear upon this lost world. He is God's kingdom and righteousness, personified. All God's power, all God's authority, all God's goodness wrapped up in this one man. Him we seek first, last, and always. Do you doubt it? Do you doubt the kingdom and righteousness of God meeting together in his person? What does his birth narrative in Matthew 2 suggest? I think he was born king of the Jews. What about the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2? I think the heavenly host announcing the incarnation of God the Son declared glory to God in the highest and the coming of peace on earth among men on whom his favor rests. Or look further on in the gospel on virtually any page. Look at his righteous reign as king over nature, over the wind, over the waves, over diseases, over the spirit world, over his friends and over his enemies. Or look at him standing before Pontius Pilate. He himself says he's a king, doesn't he? And that his kingdom is not of this world or his servants would fight. Of course he's a king. But is he righteous? Three times Pilate goes out to one group or another saying, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Seek this kingdom, this king, and his righteousness. Look at the title over the cross, written there for all to see and understand. This is the king of the Jews. Angels announce it at his resurrection. His ascension 40 days later crowns him, enthroning him in heaven from which he reigns over all nations today. All the rest of the New Testament declares him to be the true Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace. Let us keep seeking Christ, the kingdom of God and his righteousness incarnate. Christ, once humbled, poured out, crucified, 
dead and buried. Today risen, ascended, glorified and exalted to the right hand of the Father, Christ, for whom have I in heaven but thee? None else on earth I long to know. Is there any other name in heaven or on earth or under the earth? Is there any other name given among men by which we must be saved? Christ. Is there any other master worthy of the name? If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God.